Salvation is a testimony of your sovereign mercy, of your sovereign grace. And as we sang about earlier, that in that sovereign grace, you have opened up your word to show us your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. You've given us ears to hear, eyes to see, we who know you. And we thank you for this, and we will spend all eternity in praise of you because of your glory, because of your beauty, and because of your grace. And so we ask now as we open your word and prepare our hearts to hear a testimony of that grace from Ale Garcia this morning that you would show us Christ as we look at the atonement and we consider briefly why you had to die, why Christ you came, why we have an empty cross before us as the emblem of our faith and our hope. We pray that you would open our eyes, encourage our hearts, elicit from us greater worship, obedience, and maybe even for some, the first fruits of faith this morning. So be our teacher. We offer this, our time to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, we will begin next week. We've taken now, this will be our third week outside of the book of Revelation. We'll come back to the church of Thyatira uh, next week, but we're going to uh, take a little bit of time and all, this morning uh, to prepare our hearts to listen to a baptism uh, message from, I mentioned it in the prayer, Ali Garcia. And so uh, I want to consider this question, uh, why Christ had to die? Why did Christ die? And we're going to consider, this is obviously a large topic, we're going to look at it broadly, even somewhat devotionally. But it's a good place to center our attention because the testimony in a baptism is a testimony of faith in Christ. It is a testimony of a life being transformed from being outside of Christ to believing in Christ and being a partaker of His saving mercy and His saving grace. And so at the very heart of that, again, as we mentioned in prayer, is that the heart is made in salvation to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ, who was not glorious, becomes glorious in all of His saving work, in all of His beauty as the Son of God who died for us and rose for us. So the question is, why did Christ die? Why did Christ die? This is the question that must be asked. And at some point, if you are a Christian and if you've been saved, it is a, it is a question that burdened your own heart. It is something that you were made to feel within yourself that you wanted an answer to. But most importantly then, it is also the question that must be answered correctly for a person to be saved. If the death of Christ is not rightly understood, then a person's need to believe in his death is not properly understood and faith will be ill-informed and indeed even be trusting in something other than the Christ who died for our sin. So why did Christ die? Quite simply, he died to accomplish salvation for his people. And he died to accomplish salvation for his people by providing an atonement for sin. An atonement for sin. What is the atonement for sin? It could be most simply defined as this. Everything that Jesus Christ did, everything about the person of Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, for our salvation. And of course that is an ongoing work through his intercession for us and for his church and for his people. It is a work that will be completed at his return. But the atonement specifically looks at the person of Christ, his life and his work on our behalf. It is comprehensive. It is a comprehensive provision of God for our salvation. It includes his sacrifice for sin, which addresses the issue of our guilt and the consequence of death for our sin. 
It accomplishes for us reconciliation, which addresses our need to be moved from a place of hostility and enmity with God to be at peace with God. It addresses the issue of wrath that abides on us, so therefore propitiation, a word we'll look at later, which means then that Christ satisfied everything that justice demands on us and therefore averting God's wrath away from us by Christ absorbing it in himself. He accomplished for us redemption, which rescued us from our greatest need to be freed from the slavery that we were bound to in both our sin and in Satan. The atonement then addresses our need for redemption, our need for reconciliation, our need for a sacrifice, and our need to have wrath removed from us. This reality then lies at the heart of God's redemption and purpose of creation. One said this, It will be admitted by most Christians that if the atonement, quite apart from precise definitions of it, is anything to the mind, it is everything. It is the most profound of all truths and the most recreative. It determines more than anything else our conceptions of God, of man, of history, and even of nature. It determines them, for we must bring them all in some way into accord with it. That is to say, then again, that the atonement is at the very heart of the gospel. It is grasping the atonement that moves our hearts to worship, that stokes our affections to love Christ, that moves our wills to obey Him and to serve Him in this life. And even as Jason prayed this morning after reading Romans chapter 9, it is the reality of the atonement that more than anything humbles our pride, that humbles human pride and gives us an understanding of reality. So to understand the atonement, we're going to ask a series of questions. And the first question is this. Was the atonement necessary, or did Jesus Christ have to die? Was it necessary for Christ to die? And the answer to that question is yes and no. Yes and no. It was both necessary and not necessary for Christ to die. Let's consider the first part of that. The answer then is no. It was not necessary for Christ to die. What is meant by that? In other words, what is meant by no is this, that God didn't need to save anyone. He was under no obligation to provide salvation for fallen humanity. God did not need to forgive us as his image bearers. Indeed, God did not forgive angels, which is the only other moral creature that God made in creation. When angels sinned, they were not offered redemption. They were forever consigned to the consequences of their rebellion against God. So in 2 Peter 2.4, he says this, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. That was God's divine response against angelic rebellion. He's specifically there speaking of angels who sinned, and particularly those who sinned during the days of Noah in egregious ways that brought about an, a stirring up and a stoking of the fallenness of man that eventuated in the flooding of the world. He says it even more clearly in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. He says this in verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. 
And then you skip down to verse 16. He says, for assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives helps to the descendants or the seed of Abraham. He does not give help to angels. He gives help to man, to human beings. As a matter of fact, not only has no angel that sinned against God ever had the opportunity of redemption, the very creation of hell was for angels. Jesus said this in Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So the reality is that God left fallen angels, his only other moral beings that he created, to the consequences eternally of their sin, with no hope of redemption, no hope of forgiveness. And he was under no obligation to treat us as man any differently. The Father was under no obligation to send the Son and to crucify Him. The Son was under no obligation to come in response to the Father's plan and to bear our sin. The Spirit was under no obligation to regenerate the spiritually dead hearts of man. No obligation of all, at all. If salvation is to come, then... It is not because of some necessity imposed on God. If salvation is to come, if salvation is to be accomplished, it has to well up within the nature of God himself from something other than merely his holy and divine justice. And so scripture answers that question as well. What was he moved by? He was moved by his love. That is also inherent and essential to God's nature. So 1 John 4 says this, God is love. And by this, the love of God was manifest in us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So then, while the answer to the question, was it necessary for God to provide the atonement, is at first, no, God was under no obligation to provide a Savior for our sin... The other side of it is yes, because God in love, having determined to save sinners from the consequences of their sin, needed to provide a way to do that that upheld his holy justice while at the same time demonstrating his holy love. And therefore, in that sense, an answer to the question is yes, it was necessary. It was necessary because he had determined to save and salvation could come in no other way. So then another question stands along the one, why did Christ die? And that is, then how can man be made right with God? How can God uphold holy justice, holy and right condemnation of sin, while at the same time displaying grace and mercy and forgiveness and love? That is an important question. Interestingly, it's a question asked three times in the book of Job's, twice by two of his friends and then by Job himself. In Job 4.17, Eliphaz says this, Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Job himself asked in chapter 9, verse 2, But how can a man be in the right before God? And then Bildad asked in 25.4, How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? Now, again, that question is at the heart of anybody who's 
come to Christ, because at some point, if you've come to Christ, you have been burdened internally with the reality, in a sense, of your own guilt and your own sin. You have been burdened with the fact that your sin makes a separation between you and God, and you need something from outside of yourself to provide a means of reconciliation, of an answer. The, as you know, the Reformers used to call that an alien righteousness. You need something that is not your own, something that you don't have to offer. You need something to be done for you because you cannot do something yourself. That was the burden behind the questions from Job and his friends. How can a man be made right with God in light of our sin? And he says earlier in Job's, he even charges his angels with sin. He even charges them with weakness and failure. Well then, before we can grasp the answer... And the reality of the atonement, we have to start then with understanding two realities or two predicaments, and that is human sin and divine wrath. Human sin and divine wrath. And that's exactly where the Apostle Paul starts. Let's just look briefly. Again, we're looking at this very broadly, but at the book of Romans. At the book of Romans, we'll jump through a few passages here. Paul introduces the great theme of the epistle, ultimately... The greater theme is that from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. How God is going to accomplish his eternal glory through the salvation of men and the damnation of those who are outside of his Son. Both of those bring glory to God. The ultimate glory that he is working for, the most wonderful and stupendous glory, however, is his grace on display. And so he introduces the theme of how he's going to accomplish this with these words. You're familiar with them in chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation or to salvation for those who believe. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And the righteous man shall live by faith. And then immediately after making that stupendous statement, he begins his explanation of this good news, of this gospel, of this righteousness which is available to men with his word about wrath. As a matter of fact, the wrath that will occupy his attention for the next two and a half chapters. And so in verse 18, he says for. Notice that word for. He's connecting it. He's connecting it to what he just said about the power of God unto salvation. And here is the conflict then that Job's friends felt. There is this righteousness of God. There is this lack of righteousness in us. How does this get resolved? And Paul presents that as well in his own way. There is a righteousness of God that is promised in the gospel, but there is the reality of God's wrath against man for their unrighteousness. And so in verse 18, he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's the conflict. Righteousness, sin, wrath, and yet the hope of salvation. That is the conflict that we must feel. Now what is wrath? What does he mean by that? Wrath is simply defined as this. God's holy hatred in reaction to human sin. It is the reaction of an infinitely and perfectly pure and holy God against human sin. That's what wrath is. It is not capricious. It is not uncontrolled. It is a settled determination to judge and condemn all that stands as rebellious to the holy creator. 
every rebellious subject in his kingdom. It is the settled and determined reaction of infinite and eternal holiness against man's sin and rebellion. And it is, in fact, something that God knows every day and restrains, in fact. Psalm 711, God who has indignation every day, every day. Think about it, even at this very moment, if you consider every image bearer on the whole globe, just today, just at this moment, just this hour, just this minute, and calculate how much sin rises up before the eyes of an omniscient God at any given moment of perfect and pure holiness whose eyes are too pure to behold wickedness, to approve it in any way. And at every moment he beholds it as an affront to him. Imagine what that, what that is. Now the wrath of God is not a new concept. There are many references to wrath in scripture. Let me just remind you of a few of the categories. There was the wrath of God that we saw at the very beginning of the book of the law in Genesis in chapter 6. We're familiar, but again, let me remind you. We're only six chapters in. We're only three chapters past the fall. And already we have a record of God's response, of his holy response to man's sin. It says in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. He says in verse 12 or verse 11, The earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked at the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. He says at the end of verse 13, Behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. That was the wrath of God against human sin. A world that he created holy and pure, righteous and good, for the good of man and for his glory, had become corrupted. And the only answer was to wash it clean by ridding all of himself of all of those who had corrupted his good creation, save Noah and his family, whom God had preserved for himself in faithfulness to his promise to provide a savior. So there is God's wrath universally against the wickedness of man. And I would just note that nothing has changed after the flood because the issue of sin was within the heart of man. And even though Noah was a righteous man, he carried with him the principle of sin and produced other sinners, him and his family. And so it says in verse 21 of chapter 8, he says, I will never again curse the ground, God said, on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done, that is, with water. His wrath is against wicked nations. Nations who collectively rise up against him in defiance of his law. We see that in Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah who forever stand as an illustration of this. Verse 24, after God having already told to Abraham what he was going to do because of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says this. He says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities in verse 25, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the city, and what grew on the ground. He says in verse 28, and he looked down, that is Abraham looking down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley, and what did he see? He said, behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And such is God's wrath, not only on Sodom and Gomorrah, but all of the nations that would rise up against him in rebellion. 
He has wrath even against his own rebellious covenant people. Within the old covenant, those who were called out to bring glory to his name, when they sinned, it provoked the wrath of God. Listen to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 7. This is speaking of the nation of Israel. He says this, Now shortly I will pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. Judge you according to your ways and bring on you all your abominations. Verse 9, My eye will show no pity, nor will I spare. I will repay you according to your ways. While your abominations are in your midst, then you will know that I am the Lord, I, that I, the Lord, do the smiting. In other words, I want to tell you that I'm going to bring judgment for your sin, and then I want you to know very clearly that I'm going to exalt my name by judging you for your sin, and then I want you to know very clearly that it is me who is doing this, because you have rejected my ways, you have rejected my law, you have rejected my word, you have rejected my covenant, and therefore it will bring wrath. There's wrath against the entire world. As we're beginning to look at that in the book of Revelation, of course he talks about the destruction of the world by fire in 2 Peter, but in Revelation chapter 6 he says this, beginning the unfolding of the judgments of God to come, he says in verse 15, And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? And so Paul picks up on this. He says the explanation of the gospel is to begin with this reality that the wrath of God abides on man for their sin. And so in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. How is it being revealed from heaven? In a variety of ways. All of the ways that we just looked at, it's revealed from heaven in the, in the actual acts that he's done. It's revealed in heaven when he actually executes his judgment on the nations. It's revealed from heaven as he actually has recorded it in his word and declared what he will do. There's a variety of other ways. But it is a reminder that the issue that faces humanity is our sin. And God's wrath is connected then directly to his holiness and to his authority as creator. We are his creatures, his creation, we bear his image. We exist to reflect his glory. Now some have a difficult time with the understanding of wrath because we tend to think oftentimes of the holiness of God as this detached sense. Almost like there's God over here, he's to be admired, he's to be looked at, he's to be studied, he has these attributes about him, he has these perfections about him that we, we look at like a piece of jewelry. And it feels detached from our own person, our own life, our own reality, from the rest of humanity. And so therefore wrath can sometimes seem to men unfair, unrighteous. How could he do that? And so we look at sometimes God's holiness in a detached sense. But the reality is God's holiness has direct bearing on our own situation. If you remember that God said to his people, you are to be holy as I am holy. Why? Because we as his people bear his image. And those who were particularly his covenant people he called out were uniquely to reflect that image, although it is incumbent upon all men to reflect the holy nature of God because all men bear his image. And so when we sin, 
It is a direct affront to him. And holy wrath is the only right and just response against human sin. Again, let me just give you one verse. In Ezekiel chapter 28, he says this. Ezekiel 28 verse 22. To give you God's perspective. He says, thus says the Lord God, speaking against the rebellious land. Behold, I am against you, O Sidon. I will be glorified in your midst, and they will know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her, and I will manifest my holiness in her. So God is intimately and utterly concerned with the glory of his name, the upholding of his holiness in his image bearers, and he's glorified when he upholds that holiness by executing divine wrath. And so we must come to grips with that fact. That God is glorified in his wrath. And so we as the church do not need to apologize for that fact. We do not need to be ashamed by that fact. We do not need to be embarrassed by it. We do not need to justify it to a fallen humanity. God is glorified and honored in his judgment of sin. God with full and unashamed passion judges sin. And his wrath abides on all of those who stand in opposition to him. That's the message of Scripture. That's the very opening message of the explanation of the gospel. And if we don't get that, we get a superficial gospel. We get a salvation that is salvation from not the things that God sent Christ to save us from. We get a salvation from felt needs, from bad marriages, from bad lives, from disappointments and discouragements, from a sense of purposelessness and meaninglessness. Christ did not come to save from any of those. If that's what you want salvation from, go see a psychologist. If you want salvation that God provides, you have to come to grips then with your sin. And that's what man has to come to grips with. So why is his salvation, or why is his wrath so severe? Because of the ungodliness of men. Let's briefly let him explain this. Because that, he says in verse 19, which is known about God, is evident within them. God made it evident to them since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. That means every time that the wind blows, the sun rises, a breath of air is taken, and human life is sustained, God is bearing witness to himself that he is the creator, that he is the sustainer of life, that he is the one with eternal power and attributes who brought all things into being, sustains it for his own purposes. It is a witness of God to all of men. This is a part of general revelation. It means it is equally available to all men in all places at all times as a witness of God to himself. It is his witness in creation. But that is what men reject. And so he says in verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And here it is, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That is... Man's rebellion. It is an exchanging of the glory of God of creation for the worship of something else. What is the lie? The lie is most essentially this, that God is not the creator of all things and God is not the one who demands worship from me as his image bearer. That's the lie. 
that I can live my own life, I can make my own truth, I can define my own reality, I can live life in the way that I want. We looked at it last week. What is at the very heart of the abortion debate? It's my body, it's not a life that God gives, that life does not bear God's image, I will do with it as I please. And how dare you tell me that I can't do that? If we look at the LGBTQ movement, it is an autonomous way that says, I will define reality. God does not determine that for me. I determine that for myself. And I reject any sense of imposing something that I do not accept or like on me. Certainly not the God of Scripture. That is what it is, that God is not the creator. He does not have rights over me. He does not have a say in my life. I will determine truth. I will determine what I'm going to do. I will determine my future. That's at the heart of rebellion. And of course, it comes in many other ways, right? It's not just those kind of obvious sins. In fact, in 1 John, he says, everyone who does not believe the testimony of his son calls him a liar. It's even a nice person who rejects the testimony. So the sin of man is they're exchanging the glory of God who deserves all worship and obedience to worship what is not God. And in fact, just as a footnote, man's religious tendencies do not show the sincere desire to know God, but actually are an evidence of a settled rebellion against God. It is to say when we have false religions, sometimes the idea is look at how sincerely they're seeking God. But they fall into the same category that God condemned the people of Israel when he says they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. And seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have rejected the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. And essentially, that's what every religion does. This says, I inherently know that I need to be reconciled to something outside of myself. I inherently feel that. In some way, I sense that within myself. I sense somehow there is an accountability that goes beyond this world. And so I need to do something about it. I need to give myself. I need to adore something outside of myself in false religion. But I will not do it to the God who is, and I will not do it to the God who has revealed himself in Christ. And therefore, religion becomes an expression of rebellion, not a sincere seeking of God. And that's what Paul's addressing here. He says, no, there is a God, and he's revealed himself. He's revealed himself in creation. He'll later say he's revealed himself in conscience. He's ultimately revealed himself in Christ. And so therefore, what is God's response to that? And this is a part of his wrath. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. He says the same thing in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents because they hate authority, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And so we would look at a culture in our culture today, as in other cultures throughout the history of the world, and look at that list and say, ah, freedom. Freedom to live outside the authority of anybody telling me what to do. Freedom to live outside the authority of anybody defining reality for me. Freedom to fulfill every single lust that comes into my mind and gratify every pleasure that I have a desire for. Freedom. God says no judgment. Judgment. And as a matter of fact, he says, in, in, the, in being given over to those things and having a hardened heart against those things, that 
He says in verse 5, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And then he goes on to indict religious people. In chapter 2, verse down through the end of chapter 3. But let's turn to a summary statement in verse 9. And this is where the atonement has to begin, beloved. That's why we're, we're spending a little bit of time on this. Verse 9. What is God's indictment of men? And just as a little footnote, think about this. Think about what is your source of truth. If the greatest dominating influence on your thinking and reality, on the role of men and women, on the very reality of gender, on truth, on sexual mores, on marriage, on children, if the culture is defining that for you, if the media is defining that for you, if your friends are defining that for you more than the Word of God, then this is who we're obeying. We're listening to those in rebellion to God, not to the God who will have to answer to. As a matter of fact, just as a footnote here, he says in chapter 3, verse 4, May it be, rather let every God be found true, though every man be found a liar as it is written. If every news channel and movie and song all at one time said, God is not God. You are the ruler and the captain of your faith. You are the determiner of your soul and the truth that you will live by. When brought before God, it will all be found to be vanity and rebellion and judged. And God will be found to be true. So it's reality. It's simply reality. We have a, a world that wants to live outside of reality, but it won't work in the end. And so here's the snapshot, verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. And the idea is like milk that's curdled and it's not, it's not good for anything but to be thrown out. Boy, does that stand in contrast to self-esteem? Does that stand in contrast to the truth is within you and follow your heart? Does it stand in contrast to that? God's testimony is you're useless. Living a life that is vanity and ultimately to, only to be discarded because it is outside of his righteous purposes. He says there is none who does good. We are not basically good. There is none, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, the path of peace they have not known. And here it is. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Therefore, God's wrath abides on men. And then you have this amazing statement in verse 21. But, but, but now apart from the law, he had just said the law is what reveals the sin. It acts as the... The, the mirror in which man can see who they really are. And then he says this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And this is the alien righteousness that the reformers spoke of, that righteousness outside of us. The backdrop to the atonement is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. The reality is that we won't understand and long for this righteousness that can only come from God until we've understood all the way up to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Until we've dealt with the reality of guilt. And I just want to make a note here that the judgment of guilt on man is not that you feel guilty. 
It's that you are guilty, legally guilty. That you actually have offended God, that there actually is condemnation for sin. It's not that I feel guilty, it is that I am guilty. God's declaration is that I'm guilty and that I need a righteousness outside of myself. That is the issue. And God gave us a conscience to help with that. As I mentioned earlier, you're familiar. Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. Those not having the law are law unto themselves. They share the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts ultimately accusing or defending them. Being made in the image of God comes with having a conscience. That conscience can be hardened, it can be silenced, it can be seared, it can become callous, but it's there. It can be misinformed, it can be ignorant, but it's there. And we fail in that point often when we think of this idea of guilt and sin because we're not going to Scripture to define it, man does. We define it very often, sin, by comparison to other people. And so then we feel pretty good about ourselves because we're better than so-and-so. But sin is not defined by our culture and by other people. It's defined by the nature of God. Sin is against God. And that is why you can keep the whole law, fail in one point, and be be guilty of it all. Why? Because God is absolutely holy. He is perfect. He is pure. He is infinitely good. He is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. If He were to allow one one unanswered speck of darkness within His holy presence, He would cease to be holy. And so, God must judge sin, but as we noted... He had determined to save sinners. And so why was it not necessary for Christ to die? Why was it necessary for him to come and suffer? Because human guilt before a holy God is real. It is objective. It is his perfect hatred against sin. And that wrath is objective. But he had determined to display his holy love in redeeming fallen men. Therefore, it was necessary for Christ to die and to provide a righteousness apart from the law. Hence, verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. How was it witnessed by the law and the prophets? It was witnessed by the sacrifices, by the temple, by the priesthood, by the prophets who declared the word of God. It was It was witnessed to by every act of God in which both his saving acts and his judging acts, all of those bore witness to the reality of his nature, bore witness to the reality of guilt, death, sin, and yet the temple stood in the midst of an unholy people by themselves, and it stood as an emblem of saying, yet God would provide a way for man to have fellowship with him. And so the priesthood and the sacrifice and the temple and all of those things were a witness to say God has provided a way to be approached, but only one way. In His way. You don't determine what that way is. He tells you what it is. And here He says this. Even the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Of God. So, why did Christ have to die? Because there needed to be an answer to human sin. And there needed to be an answer for the image of God in man to be upheld and lived out perfectly within humanity. There needed to be both of those things. 
There needed to be a perfect keeping of the righteousness of God and of the law of God and of the holiness of God. And there needed to be an answer for all that was not that and stood in rebellion to him. Just as a note, this is sometimes referred to as the active and the passive obedience of Christ. He actively obeyed the law. He kept it. He passively, in the passive in the sense of the consequences of condemnation, bore that on the cross. Though even in doing that, he was actively obeying God. So he had to become man. So if the righteousness of God was going to be upheld, if he was going to forgive humanity, he had to provide that righteousness for humanity himself. He had to do that. How did he do that? By becoming humanity. By the eternal Son of God taking on flesh. Let me remind you again. John 1.14, the Word became flesh. Hebrews 2.14 we read it earlier. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So in that sense then, it was necessary that God ordain the cross and the Christ who died upon it. So Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all scriptures. We most acutely get a sense of the necessity, however, of Christ himself when he was in the garden. And anticipating the cross, having already been betrayed, waiting for Judas to come with the crowds. You remember he prayed to the Father, and what did he pray? Father, if it's possible... Let this cup pass from me. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And the answer was it was not possible. And so Jesus in perfect submission said, if it cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And the answer is it cannot pass away because there is salvation no other way. There is no other way that your people whom I have given to you in eternity past can be saved. And so Christ, after praying that prayer, got up, saw Judas in the crowds and walked toward them to give his life as a sacrifice. And so that's what he talks about then in Romans. Whom God displayed publicly, Christ, as a propitiation in his blood that is in his death through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. How is it his righteousness? Because it is God upholding his righteous promises. It is God upholding his own righteousness within humanity. It is God upholding the righteousness of his law and all of its comprehensive fullness in man. He upheld it. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He provided propitiation. We've looked at that many times. Let me remind you. It has an idea inherent in it of satisfaction. It satisfied the righteous requirement of God's justice. Specifically, it satisfied it by means of Christ absorbing the wrath of God on the cross and averting it from sinners who trust in him. So it's crucial to understand this. God does not and he cannot forgive sin by being nice. By just being very kind and loving. That's not how it works. We might be able to do that to some sense, but God can't do that. But here's the reason why. Guess what? We are not a holy, infinitely holy creator. God cannot do that. If God were to do that, there would be no justice in the universe. 
there would be no holy God to uphold his glory. And so that's why he said, and that was the charge that could be brought against him. And so look again what he says in verse, the end of verse 25. He passed over the sins previously committed. Well, if a blood of a bull and goat wasn't able to take away sin, how could God uphold his holiness and his justice by forgiving sin? There was the answer. It wasn't because God was nice. It wasn't because God just picked and chose and said, well, I'm feeling really good towards you today, so I'm going to forgive you. I'm feeling really nice. No, God says, I need to uphold my justice. So how was their sin forgiven? By the promise that I would provide a final sacrifice. Who was that final sacrifice? And why did Christ have to die? It was him. The eternal Son of God in flesh upon the cross, fulfilling the perfect righteousness of God for us as our substitute. In our place. That's how anybody ever is forgiven. There is not one sin since the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, since the last sin of the last person who will ever be on this earth to sin that is not judged with holy justice. Not even one. Not even one. God satisfied that holy justice in Christ, who knew no sin. He satisfied every righteous requirement and just penalty for every sinner who would ever believe. So God is just and fair to forgive, and God is just and fair to judge those who reject him. That's the issue. How is God going to treat every sinner outside of Christ? Listen, just like he treated Christ on the cross. God will treat every sinner who rejects Christ as he treated his own son on the cross. Because that is his holy justice. And he will uphold it. And so in order to provide forgiveness, to provide a way for man to be saved, the cross was necessary. It was necessary. This is what Christ did for us. This is at the heart of the testimony that is being given. It's the heart of the testimony of Scripture. Just listen, I'll read them. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He became a curse for us. He bore our iniquities. Or if we go to Isaiah 53, the Father, the God was pleased to crush him if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his suffering, and by the knowledge of his suffering, the Father will see it and be satisfied. So what did Jesus suffer on the cross? How did he satisfy God's wrath against our sin? Well, we could look and certainly see the physical pain. Josephus called it the most wretched of all deaths, and certainly it was. We don't need to go into the details. I won't for time's sake, but it was a terrible way to die. There was his physical pain, no doubt, of the scourging, the crown of thorns, the crucifixion. There was an emotional, eternal pain. No one felt emotions as acutely and as powerful as Christ himself. And all through his life, he felt only holy emotions, only perfect love to God, only an absolutely pure desire to obey him and to serve his Father. And yet on the cross, not only was he abandoned by men and betrayed by one of his closest friends, he was, in some mysterious way, experienced the abandonment of the Father. With those words we're familiar with, my God my God, why have you forsaken me? We can never understand those words. Those have often been recognized as some of the most mysterious words in all of Scripture. But he bore the spiritual wrath. He bore that wrath of God for us, the full weight of God's displeasure. 
And he bore it in a way that we can never understand. We can never understand that in those three hours of darkness that were over the land, whatever his suffering was, whatever depth it was, it was enough to satisfy infinite justice for the sins of millions and billions of people who have offended their God and their Creator. But at the end of it, God was satisfied. And Christ says, it is finished. He drank the cup of God's wrath for us. And how do we participate in it? That's what God did. Our participation in it is what we'll hear in the testimony. It is through faith. Listen to how he describes it in Romans again. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Verse 25, it is through faith. Verse 26, the one who has faith. Verse 27, it's the law of faith. Verse 28, justified by faith. Verse 30, justified by faith. Chapter 5, verse 1, how you been justified by faith. Faith then becomes the instrument through which the sinner lays hold of the perfect accomplishment of Christ on our behalf. Sometimes it's described as empty hands reaching out. It is the faith that begins with the recognition that only in Christ is the righteousness that I need. Only in Christ is the salvation that can rescue me from my sin. What does this faith look like? It's not merely intellectually believing. The demons believe and shudder, James 2.19. It's not even a matter of being emotionally convicted over sin. Judas went into the temple, if you'll remember, and said, I have betrayed innocent blood. And he threw the silver back in the temple and then he went out and he hung himself. It's not even a more positive emotional response. Jesus gave in the parable of Matthew 13 that some received the word with joy but then persecution and the deceitfulness of riches and the pleasures of this world choked that word out and they became unfruitful and they died outside of Christ. So it's not that. It's not intellectually believing it. It's not having an emotional experience when the right song is sung or the right description of the death of Christ is given. What is this faith? It is the faith that does intellectually comprehend it, that does have some conviction, but it is the faith that actually turns from sin to Christ in believing submission and reliance. That is the faith that lays hold of Christ and that bears fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. It's embracing him in all of his person and his saving work. It's not coming to Christ partway. It's not believing mostly in him. It is to say, I'm willing to deny myself, take up my cross daily, and follow him. Exchange my life for his life. So what do we learn from the cross? And I'll mention these briefly, and then we'll sing and hear the testimony. What do we learn from the cross and why did Christ die? We learn first this. Let me just mention briefly four. The cross shows us the abhorrence, God's abhorrence of sin and his absolute commitment to holiness and righteousness. If you want to know what God thinks of sin and how holy he is, then we look to the cross and to say that God could not wink at sin. He could not brush it aside. He could not just be very compassionate and look the other way. He had to uphold justice. He abhors sin, and so the cross tells us that. He did not in any way abate his anger for sin when he put it on his son on the cross. He didn't have compassion and pity towards his own son because he had given himself as a sacrifice to bear it, and so he bore it fully. God did not let up one bit 
He expended all of his anger on his holy and righteous son. And so the cross tells us, if you want to know what God thinks of sin, look at the cross. Look at the cross. He tells us secondly this. The cross shows the futility and, dare I say it, the stupidity and the foolishness and the vanity of pursuing or assuming salvation by any other means. If we understand the atonement, how utterly ridiculous, how utterly foolish is the idea that I'm a spiritual person. I'm a spiritual person. A spiritual person will be sent to hell outside of Christ. I'm a religious person. Who cares? The most religious people of the generation crucified the Son of God and were judged by Him. I'm a good person. No, you're not. You might be good to your neighbor. You might be a good friend. There's no doubt about that. Sometimes unbelievers are nicer than Christians are and treat each other better than Christians do in the church. But again, we're not comparing ourselves to the other person, are we? We look up to an infinitely holy, perfect God and we say that is the standard. That's the image I bear. That's what I must conform to. And when we do that, we become aware acutely and deeply of one reality. I am a sinner. I am not good. I am wicked, in fact. I am evil. And I need a Savior. Thirdly, it shows the vanity then of every other pursuit in life apart from love for Christ and adoring faith in Him. When all fallen humanity stands before the glorious and the risen Christ in filthy rags of sin, those who have chosen the vain and the empty pleasures of this world in rejection of the crucified Lord Jesus Christ, they will be struck with dumb horror in the presence of God. And Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? What person outside of Christ is going to stand before an infinitely holy God and said all that sex was worth it? All that pornography was worth it. I'd do it again. All of that anger, all of that wealth and the money and prestige and power and honor that I had among men was worth it. It's going to be the most putrid and hated thing in the world to say, I rejected this for that. How foolish. And so the cross shows us that. And it beckons us now before we reach that day to turn to Christ and know salvation. Fourthly, it shows us this, and this is last. It shows us the infinite depths of divine love and mercy and grace. You want proof of the limitless nature and extent of God's love? It's not by all the good and kindnesses that He shows you in life. It is in the cross. And that really has to be understood because people get tripped up. We do get tripped up there sometimes. I think I'm okay with God because, and you've had these conversations because of the good things God has done for me lately. God does good things for unbelievers all the time. He shows kindness all the time. He sends His rain on the good and the wicked. If you want to know the goodness of God and your participation in it, you look to the cross. And you say, there God provided an atonement for my sin. That's how I know God loves me. That's how I know that I stand within the mercy and the grace of God because He did that for me. And it's that cross, it's that salvation that I rest on every day to be reconciled with God. It's that and that alone that I rest on. And so we could say with the Apostle Paul, I will both in, boast in nothing save the cross of Jesus Christ. And the Christian, who's a Christian indeed, says this in Philippians 3, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Why did Christ die? 
to reconcile us to God, to provide a ransom for our slavery from sin, to provide propitiation to avert the wrath of God, to redeem us. And that is the testimony that we'll hear. So let me pray briefly, and then uh, Allie will share with us this, God's grace in her life. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Help us to see his glory. So when Paul says, Father, by the inspiration of your spirit, when he says that you who said light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts that we might see the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory that was so great, even the great apostle Paul says, it's in earthen vessels that are decaying and going to go away. But that's all the more so that your glory would shine through so that you could be seen to be worth every sacrifice. You could be seen to be worth all of our faith and our lives. And I do pray, Lord, that we who know you would be encouraged, that you would open our eyes to see this ever more clearly and that those who are outside of you maybe who are here this morning would be made to see reality, that you would open their eyes to see the truth and to see in Christ and Christ alone is their hope. But in Christ, there is a certain hope. And may they run to him. And bless our hearts as we hear of this grace in Allie's life in just a moment. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.